0: Now, the sermon this morning is uh, in honor of uh, David Nesselrode. Now, David doesn't know this, and so uh, he's automatically, he's sitting up there in the balcony, by the way, on the edge of his chair, because he has no idea what I'm, I'm about to say. Let me first of all say that the title of the message this morning is Betrayed. But that has nothing to do with why I'm preaching this sermon in honor of my friend, David Nesselrode. That's not at all it, and so please uh, don't make that uh, connection. The reason that the sermon is in honor of uh, Dr. Nesselrode, who many of you know is, as your doctor, one of the doctors at the Larson Health Center, is that I know Dave Nesselrode loves alliteration. He loves alliteration. Doesn't he, Ken? Ken's laughing, absolutely. Now, preachers use alliteration when all of the points of their sermon start with the same letter. You've experienced that, haven't you? And uh, they often do it as a mnemonic device, in other words, a memory aid to help people uh, remember the points of the sermon. Now, when Dr. Nesselrode preaches, more often than not, he uses alliteration for the points in his sermons. And the favorite letter for preachers who use alliteration is the letter P. And I don't know why that's the case. I really don't, except maybe it's that theological concepts, a lot of them begin with the letter P. Like there was that one I tried to teach you all a couple of years ago. What was that, what was that P word? Propitiation. That's exactly right. Lots of significant theological concepts begin with the letter P. P. But Dave loves alliteration and he's always been that way. He's always loved alliteration. I've known Dave for a long time. We go back all the way back to the 1980s in Morgantown, West Virginia, where he was an elder in our Alliance church there. And, he was, uh, he and uh, this was before he and Julianne and his family moved here to Shell Point in the 1980s. And even in those days, he was a highly sought-after Bible teacher. And uh, when he taught and preached, there was always some sense of alliteration. In fact, I think he may have been the one who, who first introduced me to alliteration. So he loves alliteration. I really don't so much. Uh, that, that's because when I work through a text of Scripture and, and try to pull out the main points of a passage they don't usually reveal themselves to me with the same letter. And so I don't really gravitate toward the use of alliteration. Now I I made that point this past Wednesday evening in our Wednesday evening uh, prayer service. I was giving a devotional on Psalm 140. And one of the great expositors of the Psalms was the great 19th century English preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. His uh, Treasury of David, a three-volume study of the Psalms, is one of the great classics of, of devotional literature. And in my preparation for that devotional, I came across a sermon that Spurgeon had preached on Psalm 140, and by golly, there it was, alliteration. And so, possession, petition, preservation, protection, and praise is what he got out of Psalm 140. And so I, I made the point on Wednesday night, and by the way, if you don't come to Wednesday night, you, you should try to do that. You'll find it to be a really uplifting, encouraging service in which you really get to know people in our service, in our, in our community, and also uh, really pray together as well. And uh, so uh, that's just a shameless plug for Wednesday evening. But in addition to that, I, uh, I, I basically uh, was preparing then, uh, Basically I said I wasn't really too enamored with alliteration But there it was And Spurgeon did it and, uh, But I really don't use that device to organize my sermons But then the very next day On Thursday I was working through sermon preparation Preparing my outline And there it was Everything that came out of that outline Turned out to be starting with a P And so Basically You're going to get a sermon with alliteration this morning, much to my dismay, but that's why I had to dedicate it in honor of Dr. Nesselrode, because he is the inspiration for alliteration as far as I'm concerned. Now our text this morning for this message on the betrayal of Jesus uh, begins the last section of the Gospel of John. That's the series that we've been uh, engaged in for quite some time now and it introduces us to the Passion Week uh, narrative, and that may seem like deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra might say, because not too long ago, we all went through the Passion Week services, uh, with Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, Good Friday, our Easter sunrise service, our Resurrection Sunday, all of those things were covered, and we're about ready to explore that, again, in the Gospel of, of John, the Passion Week and we're looking at it in July. And why is it that we're doing that? Well, we just finished up the Upper Room Discourse in John and we studied for four weeks our wonderful prayer of our Lord in John 17. And John 18 is the next chapter, so here we go. We're off and running in chapter 18. Our text is the first 11 verses of this chapter. So hear the word of God this morning from chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Our Father and our God, as we approach this scripture, we pray that you would place us in the midst of this narrative and help us understand its weightiness and its significance for all of us who seek to follow Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. The first thing that we notice about the betrayal of Jesus is the place, the place of betrayal. The place is a garden. And this is not just any garden. We know it as the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's very interesting that John would mention it. In fact, it's very interesting how John mentions it. We know the Garden of Gethsemane as the place where Jesus struggled through a significant portion of the night in his prayers with the Father, asking that the cup of suffering that Jesus was about to, be, to drink could be taken from him. And yet we know that in the final analysis... Jesus knew that in order to fulfill his calling and redeem a lost humanity, he would have to drink that cup. And so he told the Father in his prayers, not my will, but yours be done. And through the agony of that struggle, he accepted the task and would drink the cup of the wrath of God that everyone who would ever believe in Jesus deserved. And John was there. John was there at that time. He was in Gethsemane when Jesus struggled in prayer before the Father. In fact, he was one of the three that Jesus took with him beyond where the other disciples were to watch with him as he prayed. And of course, he was one of those who fell asleep as well during Jesus' prayer. But what's interesting about this is that John is the only gospel writer who does not include the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Gethsemane is not the only place of Jesus' struggle and prayer. It is also the place of his betrayal. And this is significant because of how gardens figure in redemptive history. Because you know, dear friends, everything started in a garden, didn't it? In the Garden of Eden. And that was the first place of betrayal. That was the place where God had wonderfully provided a most perfect environment of the flourishing of the human race that had been created in his own image. The place where Satan, unfortunately, had entered in the form of a serpent. It was the place where the temptation to transgress God's probationary commandment, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, took place. The place where Adam and Eve betrayed their creator. Yet it was also the place where God put in action his plan of redemption, promising that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and God sustained the human race, putting humanity on a course where a redeemer would be provided. It started all in the garden. And that redeemer finds himself in this garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, having to face another temptation. But instead, he was victorious, unlike Adam, because he accepted the will of the Father, and he came out of the garden and headed for the cross. Arthur W. Pink, one of the great expositors of the last century, uh, understands the nature of the relationship between these gardens, as many other commentators have, and he writes this, the contrasts between them, the two gardens, are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam, sought the face of his father. In Edom, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged at night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the, others, in the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the human race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced, Of them whom thou gavest me, I have lost none. In Eden, Adam took the, the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself in Gethsemane. Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. From Eden, Adam Adam was driven. From Gethsemane, Christ was led. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed. Pink is not the first nor the last to see the parallels and contrasts between the two gardens. It was the place of contest good versus evil, God versus Satan. It was also the place of response, the fall of Adam versus the triumph of Christ. It was also the place of a consequential result, the loss of humanity in which all those descended from Adam would be lost versus the place of redemption of humanity in which not one of those given to Jesus was lost. The place of betrayal was significant. The place where a critical moment in redemptive history place. And next we see in this story of betrayal is the person. Judas Iscariot was the betrayer. Now, what can we say about Judas? On the surface, he was indistinguishable from the other disciples. He was with Jesus for the full three years of earthly ministry. He was just as devoted to following Jesus as the other disciples. He was trusted As it turns out, erroneously, to care for the finances of the disciples, he served as treasurer for the first church of the disciples. He heard every sermon that Jesus ever preached. He had a ringside seat to all of Jesus' miracles. When Jesus told the disciples that one of them would betray him, they all wondered who it was. They were all distressed that it might be themselves. None of them said, oh, of course, we know who it is. We never trusted that guy, Judas. No, that it might be Judas never even entered their minds. You can be as close to the Savior as anyone. You can go to the greatest seminary in the world, Judas, studied with the master rabbi himself for three years. You can be a member of the greatest church in the world. Judas was the first apostolic church. You can be an officer in the greatest church in the world, even the treasurer, and you can still be lost. All of those things that I mentioned about connection with the church are wonderful. But unless you trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you would go the way of Judas. Judas was called by Jesus the son of destruction. He alone of the disciples would be lost, quote unquote, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This doesn't mean that God, by the way, put evil in the heart of Judas, of an otherwise good man, absolutely not. Remember, Judas is also a fallen human being. And as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned, none are righteous, not one, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, no one does good, not even one. And so you see, dear friends, God or Jesus doesn't have to put evil into the heart of Judas. Evil is already there. God just has to let Judas do what Judas wants to do. But the bottom line is, Judas was never really a believer in Jesus. In spite of appearances, he never did entrust himself to Jesus Christ. And that's the bottom line for you and me too, isn't it? Unless God changes our hearts, we would be just like Judas just as lost as Judas. As Paul says in Ephesians, we were dead in sins and trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. Dear friends, unless God makes us alive spiritually, we would be just like Judas, just like the betrayer. That's the person who betrayed, a religious person. On the surface a Jesus follower, a trusted member of the fellowship of the disciples, and yet not a believer, and capable of delivering Jesus over to his enemies, capable of collaborating with evil to effect the crucifixion of our Savior. So there is the place of betrayal, and there is the person who betrayed. Now let's look at the posse. At least that's the best P word I could think of for this bunch. It's the group of soldiers and religious officials commandeered to effect the arrest of Jesus. The first thing that we notice about this militia was that they came prepared for a fight. Lanterns, torches, and weapons. Doesn't say what kinds of weapons, but weapons is plural, probably swords and knives and spears as would be typical of the day. They were probably essentially the assault rifles of their day. Why would they come prepared for a fight like that? That's one of the curious things about this arrest. What were they afraid of? One theory was that they were afraid of the people, of the Jewish people. Jesus was fairly popular with the people, and that's one of the reasons they sought to arrest Jesus at night out of public view. They were also afraid of Jesus and the disciples leading an insurrection. And so they came prepared for an insurrection. But I think they were most afraid of Jesus himself. Many of them didn't just know about his miracles. They had witnessed them. Even the ones done on the Sabbath, which drove the religious leaders crazy. They even knew about the one most recently, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And they perhaps thought if Jesus could raise the dead, why couldn't he do the the opposite? Why couldn't he make the dead, make those who are alive dead? Of course, if Jesus had wanted to do that, all the weapons in the Roman arsenal wouldn't have been enough, would it? They had also remembered how Jesus had evaded previous attempts at capture. And a number of them are recorded in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7, the chief priests on one occasion had dispatched another posse of temple guards to go to Jesus and arrest him. And after a while, the bunch returned empty-handed. And they said, why didn't you bring him in, they asked him. and, And they replied, no man ever spoke the way this man spoke. Jesus' mere words repulsed his supposed captors. In John chapter eight, a mob tried to stone Jesus, but Jesus, the text tells us, hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. In John chapter 10, the text tells us again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. It's likely that the religious leaders thought that Jesus was somehow untouchable, unarrestable. They couldn't arrest him. In order to do the best they could, they had to bring out the local SWAT team. And not only that, but the posse was in a hurry. They had a limited amount of time to pull the trigger on this arrest, and so they had to bring out all of their guns. Remember, the goal was to get Jesus arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced to death, crucified, and buried, and they had to do it all before Passover. And it was the week of Passover. And there had to be two trials. The first trial was the Jewish trial, and they had to do that late at night, which by the way was illegal according to Jewish law, but they did it anyway. And then they had to essentially drag Pontius Pilate out of bed early in the morning to conduct the Roman trial. And they had to get him sent to the place of execution, and they had to get him to die, and get him, to take him, get him taken down from the cross, and then buried before sundown Before the Passover Sabbath, that's what they had to do. So they couldn't pussyfoot around. They had to get the job done. And so they brought out the big guns to do it. So there they were, led by the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, and led into the place of betrayal, the Garden of Gethsemane. And the posse played their own role in the drama of betrayal. And so they come. And that's when they run into the protagonist. Now, you might think in this drama of betrayal that the protagonist was Judas. That's not the case. And this is probably the most important point in the entire message. The protagonist is Jesus. He's the main character. And as you see, he's the initiator of everything that takes place from here on out. I would have used the word initiator at this point, but it doesn't start with P. But protagonist does pretty well. That's what a litter of preachers always have to do from time to time. Verse 4 of chapter 18 when Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? See, Jesus is the initiator in this encounter, he's the protagonist. And now see what happens, verse five. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Well, now the interesting thing is that Jesus really didn't say, I am he. That's just how the translator puts the Greek into English. But the word he is not in the original. What Jesus really did say was that I am. Now for those of you who have been Christians for a while, you'll probably understand what Jesus means by that. For those of you who are Jewish, perhaps you understand it as well. When Moses at the burning bush asks God to give him a name so that when he goes to Egypt the lead the people and they ask him who sent him, Moses is to tell, Moses says, says to God, whom shall I say sent me? God says, tell them, I am sent you. I am. I am is the four character designation reserved only for God. It's transliterated into English as, as Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on whether you grew up with the King James Version or raised in a newer translation. So Jesus asks, Who are you looking for with your weapons and lanterns and torches? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, probably in Hebrew, That's me, I'm Jehovah. I'm Yahweh." And that gets translated into Greek as, I am. Now that explains what happens next, verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am He, or I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They're stunned. They're in shock. It's as if they've been in an earthquake. I am? Jehovah? Yahweh? Whoa! Even the soldiers knew they were in over their heads. Verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth? Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he or I am. You know, it's, it's become a fairly common practice these days in organizations and corporations when they're engaged in meetings and conferences to sort of analyze the power relationships among the participants, sort of who's leading the conversation and discussion decision-making. Well, let me ask you, if you were to have analyzed the power relations in this meeting, who do you think is in charge right now? Who do you think? That's why Jesus is the protagonist. Now Judas may have thought he was leading the meeting, but he was now officially out of control of the meeting. But then right away, the protagonist becomes the protector. Verse 8 again, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so that if you seek me, let these men go. Remember, the the posse had come prepared for an insurrection. Uh, There was no doubt, based on the number of people that they brought and the number of kinds of weapons and other militia-like paraphernalia, that they had expected to arrest not just Jesus, but all 11 disciples as well. And Jesus knew that even before there was any attempt at an arrest. And so, again, he was the protagonist. He cuts them off at the pass And he says, let these men go. And guess what? They do that. They comply with Jesus. That was all by design, by the way. Not by their design, but by God's design. Because verse 9 says, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Of course, what Jesus prayed in John 17 expands the meaning of this verse into a spiritual guarding and protection of all of those who would ever believe in Jesus. But as sort of a down payment on that promise, it applies to preserving these disciples in their moment of danger and vulnerability in the garden. So Jesus, you see, is the protagonist, and he is also the protector of all of those who believe in him. And then we have the Peter. Okay, so I couldn't think of a P word for Peter, except for Peter. So to make the outline work, I just added the definite article and made it the Peter. Now that's not so out of the box, is it? Remember the days gone by when they used to call Donald Trump the Donald? Now, I don't say that, by the way, to indicate that there's any particular similarity between Donald Trump and St. Peter. <laughs> Although, based on what Peter does in a moment, is what's about to happen, you might think that there is some connection. I don't know. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Peter was just being Peter. He was clearly the most impulsive of the disciples. And he was of the Ready, Fire, Aim school of theology, by the way. He was accustomed to doing stuff without consulting the rabbi first. But the bottom line is what Peter did was not in Jesus or God's plan. And so verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, Jesus had settled before in the Garden of Gethsemane the way this should go down. And Peter's sword or any other thought that any other disciple might have had to defend Jesus had no part in redemptive history. And so Jesus, the protagonist and protector, gave himself up to the posse of betrayal, Having been betrayed to the posse by the person of Judas in the place of betrayal, the Garden of Gethsemane. So, what does all of this mean? What's the big picture here? The big picture, or the main point of this entire episode, is rooted in the final P word the potentate. The potentate is a ruler. A king, the king of kings, in fact. The omnipotent one, the one who is all-powerful. The sovereign one who has all authority. The almighty God, the one who has all power. Because you see, dear friends, this narrative shows that everything that takes place in this episode has been orchestrated by the grand conductor of the universe. In fact, it began well before when Jesus prompted by an encounter with the gentiles back in chapter 12 of John knew that his time had finally come his time when he would glorify the father glorify the father by his crucifixion it includes his triumphal entry into jerusalem to fulfill scripture all according to God's redemptive plan, his riding on the colt of a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, riding into Jerusalem at the same time as the Passover lambs likely were being led into the city for their mandatory three days of assessment and probation. He, of course, was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It includes his taking the Passover meal and transforming it into the Lord's Supper for the disciples. It includes his sending Judas off to do what Judas had purposed to do in betraying him. It includes his arrest, time to bring him to his crucifixion, most likely when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered his death unfolding in a way that fulfills scripture, his burial taking place in order to fulfill scripture, his three days and three nights in the grave according to the scriptures. Everything from his arrest onward, one could claim that he had no control over those things, but in fact, only the divine hand of providence could have orchestrated and conducted every last detail. All of this fulfilling the words of Jesus Remember back in John chapter 10, Jesus said, for this reason, the Father loves me, listen to this, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus Christ, the potentate of time, As Matthew Bridges' him, crown him with many crowns, says, Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time. Indeed, he is the potentate not just of time, but of everything. People often debate who killed Christ. Some say the Jews killed Christ. Some say the Romans killed Christ. No! Jesus gave himself up. He laid down his life. And he did it for you and me. And he brought every single event to pass that would fulfill the triune God's redemptive purposes. He is the potentate. He is the one who orchestrated every last detail of this day, this episode, this night, indeed the entire week. And that's the one we worship. Heavenly Father, We come before you humbly recognizing that apart from your grace, we are like the betrayer himself. That there is nothing that we bring to the table for our salvation except the sin that requires it. And we know that our Savior accomplished his redemptive purposes in us by orchestrating every last single event. And we glorify you and desire, Father, that you would enable us to lift the name of Jesus in adoration and praise. And we'll once again give glory to you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.